You know, there are a lot of words that we use in Christian circles. It's what, what we call Christianese, right? There's certain language that is inherent with believers, like the word awesome. We hear that word a lot. Uh, the culture doesn't really know what we mean, but we use the word awesome in a different way than the culture uses it. Another word I thought about this week is the word grace. We use the word grace a lot, but do we really even know what it means? Do we know what it means there? The term grace, when you think of grace, what, what comes to your mind? Is it the condescending love of God towards you, the un, unmerited favor of God towards a lost sinner? Is that what we think about? See, in the first century, pagan religions didn't really understand the concept of grace at all. They didn't know what grace was. And so to hear the word grace uh, was news to them, that God would instead of them having to somehow reach up to God and appease His wrath by offering sacrifices, to think that the love of God would condescend to man and would, God would appease His own wrath towards us uh, was just unheard of, unthinkable. So, when we think of grace, it ought to bring to our mind a lot of things, but what we ought to think about is the condescending love of God. And in the, in the Middle Ages, the Reformers and the Catholics had a lot of fights about the topic of grace. And the question was, are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or are there other means of grace? Are there other ways to get more grace? And for them, the sacraments were a way to get more grace from God. They were a means of grace. So when we say sacraments, what we're talking about is baptism and communion, what, what they would call, a, you know, we call it the Lord's Supper, but to them it's something completely different. Um, and they're sacraments, they're ways to get more grace. And for them, it was the idea that uh, works can get more grace. For us, it's the idea that grace works by itself. And so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the fact that grace works in our life, or at least it should work in our life. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Titus chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and we're going to talk about what grace is this morning and how it should impact our lives as believers. So... The Apostle Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, there's a lot I could do with this passage, and I could spend, this is a theologically rich passage this morning, but what we're going to do is see in this passage two ways that the grace of God should impact our lives as believers. And it's, it's basically built around two words in the text, if you'll notice with me. It says the grace of God has appeared, and then it, there's two things that follow there, instructing in verse 12 
and looking, verse 13. Those two ideas unpack this idea of grace has appeared. And the rest of the text really kind of explains that. So two ways that grace should impact us is that it should instruct us and it should cause us to look to the return of Christ. And we're going to talk about that more this morning. So, first, the grace of God should instruct you. See that in verse 11 there. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. You see that? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So, what I want you to notice first is just some observations on the text. Look at the word for. Do you see the word for there? A for, when you find it in the text, when a verse starts with the word for, it's usually kind of an explanatory or a reason why. And so as you look at the text, uh, this is explanatory as to why, uh, this is the reason why the older men in verse 2, the older women in verse 3, the younger women in verse five, uh, 4, and the younger men in verse 6, um, and even the bond slaves in verse 9, this is why they should behave the way they should behave, because the grace of God has appeared, because the grace of God has appeared. So grace is clearly going to be the subject of verses 11 to 14. Grace has appeared, past tense. But what is it? It says grace, it's the word charis in the Greek. We've all heard the word before, we know the word grace, but what is it? The grace of God has appeared. Well, when you look in this book, what it's talking about in this particular context is Christ's birth, his death, his life, his resurrection, the whole package of Christ's appearance. Um, that is the grace of God towards mankind, is that God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. You can look over at Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. He talks about when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. And notice, too, by the way, this is, this is just for free. This is a side topic. Uh, notice verse 13 of chapter 2. Our great God and Savior, who? Christ Jesus. And then over here in 3, 4, God, our Savior. So God is our Savior. Christ Jesus is our Savior. The two are co-equal in that. That's for free. That's a side. But I want you to see uh, the only other place that the grace of God is referred to in this way is in uh, 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. So why don't you turn there? So this is not specifically talking about God's unmerited favor or his inclination of grace towards us, his mercy, if you will. What this is talking about is the grace of God in his son, in, in his son's life and death and resurrection on our behalf. So look at first Timoth uh, 2 Timothy 1.9. So just picking up from verse 8, it's the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So there's the grace, and grace appeared 
in Christ. It appeared in Christ. So it's the grace of God shown toward mankind in the life and ministry of Christ. And in my mind, when I was thinking of something to preach on for Pastor Dave, I thought, what greater connection to the Gospel of Matthew than the life and ministry of Christ, the grace of God toward us. So, you may not see the connection, but I do, and that's okay. <laughs> so, this grace, notice that it's bringing salvation, back to Titus, it's, it's bringing salvation to all men. And so, this is the redemptive work of Christ. It's bringing salvation to all classes and kinds of men, is how we ought to understand this. And when it says men, it's uh, generic masculine. It doesn't mean men only. It means men and women. And it means all men and women, meaning all classes and kinds of men and women. It's not saying that all people are saved, right? We would clearly not imbibe that theology. Um, but what it is saying is that the grace of God shown to mankind in the life and ministry of Christ results in salvation being brought to all classes and kinds of men. Mankind. Okay? So what we need to see is that this grace has an educative purpose. This grace has come to us, it's come to us in Christ, and it has an educational purpose for our lives. You see that in verse 12, right? It, this grace is almost personified as like a school teacher that's instructing believers. It's the Greek word paiduo, and it, and it has the idea of, of training or educating or discipling or even chastising. Uh, it's, and it's in the present tense which, which carries the idea that it's continually instructing or training us. It's ongoing training. And you have to look at Galatians 3. That's why I had Bernie read that for us, and he did a good job doing that. So let's turn over to Galatians 3 real quick, and I just want to point something out to you. Verses 24 and 25. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That's the word pedagogue, and it comes from the same word. And the idea is that the law used to be our instructor. It used to be mankind's tutor, if you will. But now grace is our instructor or our tutor. We are not under law, we are under grace. And so grace is our tutor, it's our instructor. Grace has replaced the law. And so grace continually instructs believers in a couple of different ways, according to the Apostle Paul. And you can see that in verse 12. Uh, two ways that grace instructs us. Uh, the first is to deny ungodliness, and worldly desires. You see that? The first way that grace instructs believers is to teach them to, to deny sin, to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly desires. The idea here is that they would, they would disown it, they would refuse to follow after it, they would renounce it, they would deny it. It would not be a part of their lives. It's a really strong word, this word deny. And most of the time it shows up actually as a personal rejection of an individual. You're to reject a person. 
You're not to follow after them. You're not to, you're to deny them. But here in this context, the Apostle Paul says that grace teaches us to say no or to deny or to refuse sin. Worldliness, uh, worldly desires and ungodliness. Now, I need to talk to you about grammar a little bit, and grammar is one of those words that people don't like very much, but the tense of the verb denying actually indicates that there needs to be, that there's an actual starting point to denying. Okay, in, in the Greek it's an aorist, and, and I know that doesn't mean much to you, but what I want you to know is that it, it means that there's a starting point. There should actually be a point in your life where you start denying sin. And, and once that starts, um, it should be an ongoing process. And it's also in the middle voice, which means that we need to be sort of active participants in it. It's not going to happen to us, um, and we don't do it to somebody else. It's the idea of self-denial. We have to, uh, in a sense, deprive ourselves of the ungodliness and the worldly desires that tend to grip our affections. And that's what the grace of God does. It instructs us this way. It instructs us to refuse those things. Self-denial. To deny self-indulgence. Now, we ought to look at those words there. Ungodliness is the idea of impiety toward God. It's, it's not an uncommon word. Um, but it's the idea of a lack of reverence toward God. You see it over in Romans 1.18, right? There, there was ungodliness there. It's, uh, it's impiety. It's ungodliness. It's, it's not living in a way that's pleasing to God. Worldly desires is a, a little more of an earthy expression. It's, it's the idea of earthly desires, worldly lusts, worldly passions. You get the idea. 1 John 2.16 all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. It's, it's worldly desires, worldly passions, things of the world that grip our souls. And interesting, look at the text with me. Ungodliness is singular, but worldly desires is plural. And some people believe that one term is an umbrella term, the ungodliness is sort of an umbrella term, and that the worldly desires is all the specifics that run underneath uh, ungodliness. Both words also, you wouldn't see this in the, unless you're looking at the original, but both words have the word the in front of them, the definite article, so it's the ungodliness and the worldly desires, and what that means is that these are the ungodliness and the worldly desires that stand in opposition to the grace of God. And so we as believers are to reject those things. We are to deny them. We are to refuse them. We're to say no to them. We don't want you. Go away. It's really typified if you go back to chapter 1 of Titus and look at verses 15 to 16, and it really sort of describes, these two words describe the activities of the false teachers. False teachers sort of imbibe these qualities of ungodliness and worldly desires. You see that? To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, 
but their mind and their conscience are defiled, and they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And, and that's the irony, is that false teachers deny the grace of God by their deeds, but believers are to deny their sin because they know the grace of God. And it's the same word that's used there. It's the same word. They, they deny God by their deeds. So, you can either deny God's grace and embrace sin, or you can embrace God's grace and deny sin. Did I say that right? Either deny God's grace and embrace sin, I'll say it again, or you can embrace God's grace and deny sin. There's really no middle ground. There's no riding the fence. You're either walking in grace or you're walking in sin. And so uh, I have a quote here for you. This uh, commentator by, his last name is Van Osterzee. I know that's an odd name. But the true learning of heaven must begin with the unlearning of all which stands in the way of the development of the new man. So what we need to do is unlearn the old ways, and we need to renew our mind, and we need to reject those things, and we need to put on righteousness, which is what we're going to talk about next. So let me just say this, in regard to worldliness and, and uh, ungodliness and worldly desires, let me, let me just say this, that the allure of the world is hard to resist, isn't it? The, the allure of the things of the world, especially when somebody has trained themselves to love those things. And, and it happens over the course of time. Uh, people train themselves to love worldliness and ungodliness. And I, I'm not saying that you can't have any fun in life. So don't, you don't hear me saying that, right? But what I am saying is that this the way grace instructs us is that we need, to, we need to deny ourselves sin. We need to starve it. We need to choke it out. We need to strangle it, not indulge in it. And that's, that's a mental shift. That's a mental shift for us. And the only way to kill sin is to rob it of its power. And the only way to rob it of its power is to know the grace of God. And so... The two wage war against each other. They fight for the control of your soul. It's grace or it's ungodliness. And which one are you going to walk in? That's the question. But the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And then part two of that is it instructs us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You see that in verse 12. So there's a there's a negative instruction on the one end. We're supposed to stop doing these things. But the positive instruction is to do these things. So, uh, we need to live godly, sensibly, righteously, and godly. And it's, it's an active lifestyle. And so, these, these three words that follow here in the text, uh, these are based upon grace, and this is how we are to live. As believers. So the word sensibly, 
Uh, in Titus, this word shows up repeatedly throughout the text, and it's over there in chapter 1, verse 8. It describes a qualification for an elder. You see that? He's supposed to be hospitable, loving what is good, and sensible. You see that? And then over in chapter 2, verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, and sensible. It's down in verse 5. Young women are to be sensible, pure, workers at home. And then down again in verse 6, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. And the idea with this word um, is that it means self-controlled, if you will. Sound-minded is the idea. Sober, temperate, discreet. Um, It's really a word that describes maturity. Maturity as a believer. We're to be mature as believers. I like what one commentator said here. He said, A clear mind and accurate thinking do not arise simply from the absence of distraction, but from the presence of God's grace. So we need to be accurately thinking. We need to be clear-headed. We need to be sober-minded as believers. We need to put off ungodliness, and we need to put on being sensible. That's the idea. The word righteously, it it means uh, in an upright manner. Uh, there's, a, there's a sense of moral obligation to this world, a, a word. It's the word uh, dikaios. You've heard the word dikaios before. Uh, Paul uses it over in 1 Thessalonians 2.10 to describe his own activity there with the Thessalonians. He behaved among them in an upright manner. And, and essentially what we're talking about here is just conduct that's above reproach. It's, it's unable to be condemned. It's righteous. Uh, The third word there, godly, uh, is a common New Testament word that just describes a person's, their right attitude toward God and the things of God. They they want to be pleasing toward Him. So it's it's a right attitude and a right relationship toward God and the things of God. It's It's their disposition toward Him and His precepts. Now, interestingly, look at the words with me. Uh, Some have suggested that each one of these words represents a a believer's relationships, uh, Christian relationships, if I can say it that way. Uh, Some have suggested that the idea of being self-controlled or sound-minded is is himself, his relationship to himself. Uh, The idea of being upright is his relationship to other believers. And the idea of him being godly is his relationship to God. So whether or not you want to buy that, I don't know. It seems to work. Um, but it's talking basically about conduct, right? And the scope of that conduct, look at the text, is in the, pres- in the present age. And what, what this means basically is that grace is operational in the here and now. We don't have to wait for the kingdom to come. We don't have to wait for Jesus Christ to return. It's now in the present age we are to act sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We have the ability now to do these things. We don't have to wait for Christ to return before we can start acting this way. Now, sadly, the culture that we live in are large proponents of cheap grace. And that's another one of those Christian words we throw around a lot, but what is cheap grace? 
It is the idea that we can place faith in Christ and then we don't have to change, right? We can say we believe in Jesus, but then we can go on living ungodly. And the Apostle Paul says, no way, you need to put off all that stuff and you need to walk in righteousness, right? I I like this quote from A.W. Pink. Here's a guy who lived quite a while ago and it was still a problem back in his day. And he says, the nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present day evangelist. He announces a savior from hell rather than a savior from sin. And that's why so many are fatally deceived. For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. You get that? It's, it's fine. I want to be saved from hell, but I don't want to be saved from my own sin. I don't want to get rid of my sin. I want to keep my sin. I just don't want to go to hell. And that's, beloved, that's cheap grace. You've missed it. You don't understand the grace of God if that's your thinking. A.W. Pink had it right. The grace of God has delivered us from carnality and worldliness, not just from hell. So denying sin and living righteously are, are really just two sides of the same coin of repentance. Think of them as two sides of the same coin. There is one's negative, one's positive. And true repentance in its most basic understanding involves the idea that you would deny sin and ungodliness and that you would put on righteousness in its place, right? That's repentance. It's, it's putting off, it's renewing the mind, and it's putting on. And that's what real repentance involves. And it it has to involve the totality of the person, not just their actions. It has to involve the intellect, the emotion, and the will. The whole person has to reject the sin and accept righteousness. And so, you know, I don't have time to go through it, but if you look at Ephesians 4, you see that model, right? You don't lie to anybody anymore, but you speak truth. Don't steal from anybody anymore, but you work hard with your own hands so that you have something to share with others, right? You don't be bitter anymore, but you replace that with um, being gracious toward other people the way God has been gracious to you. So that's what repentance looks like. It's, it's, It's the putting off and it's the putting on. And that's how the grace of God instructs us. That's what the Verses saying. So the second way that grace should impact your life is it should inspire you. You see that in verses 13 to 14. Again, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So grace should change our orientation. It should inspire us. Uh, We should watch expectantly and hopefully for the return of Christ. We should live with an attitude of expectancy that he's going to return. And I think as we talk about this, what what I'm really talking about here is having an attitude of hopefulness, 
hope. Hope is what I think inspires believers to persevere in the faith. And it's hope that Christ will reappear in the future. Grace has appeared, but this part is talking about the fact that it's going to appear again in the future. Uh, And grace will be fully realized in the person of Christ. Now, I, I think this is important because I think believers today are woefully lacking in hope. And I think as we talk about this, you'll understand what I mean. But two reasons that the future grace of God should inspire you. And first is Christ's return in glory. You see that in verse 13. This is Christ's second appearing, and it will be accompanied by glory. We had his first appearing. Christ has appeared, and he has brought grace. But he is going to appear again. And when he appears again, grace will be fully realized. And this is what we call the blessed hope. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the blessed hope. It's, it's, the, it's the blessed hope and the appearing. Um, but actually, the way it reads, there's only one definite article in front, only one word, the, which means they're both the same thing. The appearing of Christ is the blessed hope. And the blessed hope is the appearing of Christ. They're the same thing. And what it's talking about is not so much just the fact that Christ is going to sort of unveil himself and be there. It's talking about his personal presence with his people. That it's not just that it's like this glorious vision of Christ in the heavens. He will be with his people is the idea. His appearance is a personal presence. And when he comes, it's life for us. Okay? Notice in verse 11 and 13, the word appearing is used twice. And it's a translator. We transliterate an English word out of this. It's the word epiphany. It's the word epiphany, or we might call it an advent. And... In Titus and in 2 Timothy 1.9, which we have already looked at, those describe Christ's first advent, but elsewhere the word appearing describes his second advent. And I just want to make sure that we look at a few of those so that we're clear on that. So you can look at 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearing, appearance of his coming. You see that? And then 1 Timothy 6.14. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And... One more chapter here, 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8, uh, or not 1 to 8, but just 1 and 8. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. And then drop down to verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
And it's, it's those who are looking for future grace. When Christ returns, uh, we will drop the sin. Sin will be no more. We'll lose these bodies and we'll be in the presence of our Savior uh, finally and fully. It's that, that future event that believers are to look forward to. So, it should inspire us. And, and when I talk about inspiration, I'm talking about hope. And, and when we look at the text, there's, there's really five reasons for that hope in Christ's return. And the first is uh, resurrection. I, I've alliterated these. They're ours. So, first just think in terms of resurrection. And that is that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ, those who have died as believers will be raised to new life, right? They will be raised from the dust of the ground to receive new and glorified bodies. So resurrection. Second is redemption. And that is for believers who are alive when Christ returns. When he returns, we won't have to experience death. We will just get translated into new glorified bodies. So the presence of sin will be gone. We will be perfectly sanctified will be changed in an instant and will be with our Savior and with the dead in Christ, a la 1 Corinthians 15. Third is reunion. Reunion with our Savior and the loved ones who have died in Christ. That's really what 1 Thessalonians 4 is all about. The rapture is definitely in the text, but, but the point of that text is to bring comfort to believers that they're going to be rejoined with those who have died in Christ. They will see them again. And there will be a, a glorious reunion, not only with them, but with their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth is rescue. Think in terms of rescue. First Thessalonians 5.9, that we will be rescued from the wrath that is about to be poured out on the entire world. Christ delivers us from the wrath to come. Also, First Thessalonians 1.10. He delivers us from the wrath to come. There's wrath coming, and our union with Christ will save us from that wrath. So think rescue. And fifth is the idea of retribution. And that is, while God is delivering us, while we are being escorted off the earth into the presence of God, ushered into, his, into life with Him eternal, at the same time, wrath will begin to be poured out on those who have been persecuting the church all along. And so, it's paybacks. It's paybacks for those who have been persecuting the church. After that, there's a couple of more R's if you want them. But they're, they're definitely things to hope in, right? They're definitely things to hope in. And I would say, after all of that happens, then there are rewards, right? Believers are supposed to be taken away to receive rewards in heaven. So that happens after all of that. And then you can think in terms of reign, too. Reigning with Christ in the kingdom. That happens after that, too. So there's really seven. But I just associated five with the actual return of Christ. The other two happen after, after that. But there's a lot to look forward to, isn't there? Think about that with me. I mean... That's blessing. That is grace. That is glory. That is something to look forward to. That is something to place your hope in. 
Turn to First Peter. I think actually I had it put up here. First Peter one thirteen. Yeah. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Same idea, same concept. When Christ comes, beloved, it's going to be glory. It's going to be glory, and it's going to be glorious. And it's something that should inspire us. When Christ returns, it is going to be a glorious day for those who have longed for his appearing. It signals the arrival of all the blessings and all the promises that God has for us in Scripture. They will all be fully and finally realized. And, and this is important. We, when you look at the text, we, we talked about grace instructing us because it has appeared. And so that's sort of past tense. Christ has come and he has died and we should live with gratitude for that. But for believers, there also needs to be this expectancy of what's coming in the future, right? This hope that Christ is coming again. And when he comes, he is going to set everything right. He's going to fulfill all of his promises. He's going to reward us. It's just all there. It's all there in his coming. So as believers, we should expectantly look forward to that return. And by the way, when Christ returns, that kicks off what eschatologically is known as the day of the Lord in the big picture sense of it. There's an actual day of the Lord, and then there's a broad scope day of the Lord, which is longer than a 24-hour period. But when Christ returns, the day of the Lord begins. And all the eschatological promises of God begin to unfold. Uh, when I say eschatological, what I mean is end times, last things, last days. Secondly, uh, the second reason uh, grace or the second way that grace should inspire you is Christ's redemption of his church. You see that in verse 14. Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, redemption and purification are both past tense actions that Christ's death has accomplished for believers. They're past tense. So here, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf is made personal, though. You, what you want to see in the text is that Christ gave himself for us to make us his own peculiar possession. He, he, he bought us, he purchased us with his blood. And what that means for us uh, is that the possession, which is us, should long to be back with its owner. Notice the link between redemption and purification. Uh, the dual purpose, if I could say it this way, of Christ's sacrifice was to uh, liberate believers, to, to remove them from the control of sin over their lives. And that's the idea of redemption from every lawless deed. Uh, and to remove the defilement of sin. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. So twofold purpose, uh, liberation from sin, the idea of redemption, and cleansing from the defilement of sin, that's the idea of purification. 
And that's what Christ gave himself for us uh, to do. Notice also that redemption is from every lawless deed. You see that? Not just some of them, but from every single one of them. And redeemed from all the lawless deeds and given new good deeds to walk in. I want to go back to this word possession. It's it's an unusual word. It's the only use of it in the New Testament. And it basically means that believers are, they're a special, they're a a private, a a chosen, sort of the idea is a personal treasure. It's it's a really uh, important word. Um, But Christ, here's the idea, Christ chose us He gave himself to buy us. He purchased us. And now uh, we are his choice, personal treasure. You're a a trophy of God's grace, if I can say it that way. You are a trophy of God's grace. And the, the evidence that you belong to God follows in the text. How do you know you belong to God? You would be zealous for good deeds. You'd be zealous for good deeds. It's really the kind of the Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 idea. We're saved by grace. And, uh, and God has given us works, good works to walk in. The interesting thing about good deeds is that they've been prepared by God for believers to walk in them. That God sort of prepared the deeds and allows us to be the ones to carry them out, but all the credit goes to him for the good deeds. We don't get any of the credit for them. So, so even your best efforts are God's. They belong to him. He gets all the credit. So why should this inspire you this morning? I don't enough talking about that. So why should Christ's redemption of the church inspire you? And I think the reason is because Christ is most certainly going to return for that which he has purchased. Let me ask you a question. If you bought a new car, would you leave it in the parking lot or would you take it with you? Right? Would you go back and pick it up or would you just leave it there after you bought it? And, and that's how we need to think. Christ purchased us with his blood, but he's coming back to get us. And it's the, it's the John 14, 1 to 3. You know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But where I'm going, uh, I'm going to come again and I'm going to bring you, um, I'm going to collect you and I'm going to take you back with me. That's the idea. So future grace should inspire us to, to persevere in the faith. It should cause us to be hopeful. And I don't know about you, but have you noticed the rates of anxiety and depression among believers today? I mean, it's not just a, a problem with the world, it's a problem with believers. And, and, and the solution and the antidote to anxiety and depression is hopefulness. It's hopefulness. And I think the reason is because the church has lost its hope in the grace of God. We live in a hopeless culture. We do. Uh, 
And, and a lack of hope means a lack of zeal for the things of God. But believers, as I look at this text, and all the ones that we've looked at this morning, we ought to be the most hopeful people, don't you think? We know that Christ is coming again for us. That's what the Word of God says. And we know that when He comes, we get all of those things that we talked about. Resurrection, reunion, rewards, it's all coming. And so we should be the most hopeful people in the world. Christ has liberated us from our sin, and He has purified us from our sin, and He has given us His Spirit so that we can walk in righteousness now. And so we're not under the law. We don't have to live by the letter of the law anymore. We can walk in grace. We can walk in the Spirit. And to the degree that we walk in the Spirit, we become doers of the law. It's an interesting paradox. If you try to keep the law in the flesh, you'll break it every time. But if you walk in the Spirit, you become a doer of the law. It's, it's a really interesting paradox. Listen to what this guy Victor Shepherd said. He said, hope from a biblical perspective is a future certainty grounded in a present reality. And the reality is, beloved, we are saved and Christ has appeared and he's going to appear again and our hope is there, right? And that hope should be inspirational to us as believers. It should transform our thinking. It should cause us to be different. And, and just so we're clear, that return of Christ, that appearance of Christ could come any day, any moment. could be today. Right? We believe in the imminency of the return of Christ. And what that means is that it could happen any time. And so that's why it's a purifying hope. Because if we know Christ could be here at any moment, we better get our affairs in order, right? If you knew you were going to die, you'd take care of business, wouldn't you? So if you know that Christ is coming at any moment, why the delay in taking care of things? Why the delay in, in living godly now if you know Christ could return at any moment? See, I think hope is a remedy for so much that ails the church. Um, it's, it's really the remedy for anxiety and depression. And, and in fact, anytime you do biblical counseling, the first order of business is to instill hope. Instill hope. That there's hope. And the hope is that through the gospel, change can happen. I guarantee you, if you live your life in anticipation of the fact that Christ could return at any moment, you, your decision-making would be completely different and your lifestyle would be completely transformed. I guarantee you. God's grace works. It works in the here and now. And the way it works is that it instructs us and it inspires us, or at least it should. And we should be so impacted by the grace of God that people who used to know us 
would no longer even recognize us today. We would be so different. We would be so different. It should change our, our orientation. It should change our direction. It should change the way we live. The grace of God has appeared, beloved. And it's instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. To live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And, it's, and it should inspire us to look forward to the future. That's how the grace of God works. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and for sending him for us to die in our place, to redeem us to yourself. Father, we are your peculiar treasure. I thank you, Father, for the life that Christ lived, the death that he died for his resurrection, which is the first fruits of what we have to look forward to. Father, we know that if Christ be raised, then we will be raised with him to newness of life. Father, there is so much for us to be hopeful about. I pray that we would walk out of here this morning with our minds elevated toward your promises and your, and your future presence. Father, that we would look forward to the return of Christ and, and all that that will unfold for us. Lord, we are so grateful and so hopeful for what the future holds. May you help us to change, Father, not in the flesh, not to try to affect change as some sort of self-reform, but, Father, may we change through the power and the enablement of your Holy Spirit. Father, please continue to change us into the image of Christ our Savior. We pray for his sake. Amen.